0: And welcome to Popcorn Junkie. On this week's episode, we only have two movies to review: the prequel sequel, The Huntsman, Winter's War, and the 2015 independent biopic of Miles Davis, Miles Ahead. Let's get started. I'm stronger than all of you. Shall we find out? The story before Snow White. Oh boy. This was a fun one. So yeah, back in 2012, Universal made a Snow White movie to essentially kind of compete with the live action Mirror Mirror that was around the same time, and essentially to try and build this sort of fairy tale universe, because that's what the big thing in Hollywood is now. Get multiple properties and build a universe. They're doing it with Hanna-Barbera, they're still trying to do the Universal monster one, Since Avengers, the big thing now is Universes. So, yeah, Universal did Snow White, and it was, eh. It was the better of the two, because everything I've seen of Mirror Mirror looks hokey as all get out. Like, if you're up for that sort of broad humor, like CBS sitcom-level comedy writing, okay, good for you. But that's painful for me to try and watch. And Snow White and the Huntsman wasn't good, but it was okay. Like, it got along enough on its visual effects to make up for its pretty lackluster and underwritten characters and mediocre performances all around. Because this isn't the best thing to come out of Chris Hemsworth or Charlize Theron or even Kristen Stewart. Like, they've all done better. They're all boring characters. Because they're not written to be real characters. They're written to be caricatures, shapes of actual characters to stand in with the effects. This time around, since Kristen Stewart nearly ruined the marriage of the director by sleeping with him, she's out of the picture. Literally, she's out of the picture. She's not, she doesn't show up. And instead, they reference her in the storyline and show a chick with long brown hair and say, you're this Kristen Stewart, by the way. Anyway, moving right along... (laughs) Like, they completely just, like, Oh, hey, is that Kristen Stewart? Hey, it's not Kristen Stewart. Yeah, it's Kristen Stewart over there. Don't worry about it. Move along. (laughs) It's so bad. And this time around, it's a prequel sequel. Like The Godfather 2. If The Godfather 2 was written by a mental invalid. Because all it is is Frozen with the last movie and a dash of Brave. Because... This time around, we introduce the unseen sister of Charlize Theron's character from the last movie. What a shocker! Played by Emily Blunt, who turns into Elsa from Frozen, i.e., the ice queen. And because somebody broke her heart, now she outlaws love. I'm not sure how you outlaw love, but whatever. You know, this is these are the kinds of things that they think of. When they don't have good writers it's like oh she had her heart broken so she turns into the ice queen so she outlaws love wait what how do you outlaw love don't worry about it it's all in the effects anyway she would turn her into a superhero it's okay just roll with it this isn't for our thinking audiences we're gonna throw this over to the other countries and they're gonna love it don't worry about it so there's a prequel bit where we introduce the huntsman character because it couldn't just be oh he hunts in the woods and kills animals for their pelts and their food, and the meat as food, and he has a family, and that's it, and then he's hired by the queen to kill Snow White, because that's all he was. That's all that character was. Now he's apparently a medieval marine, because they have an elite group of huntsmen, quote-unquote, to attack other kingdoms or something. Doesn't matter, because it's hardly ever shown because it didn't put big battles in the budget this time so in direct defiance of the outlaw and love jessica chastain who's doing a terrible terrible scottish accent and she goes in and out of it like both her and Chris Hemsworth go in and out of their Scottish accents before a scene is being filmed. They have to be, hey, you remember, you're Scottish. Oh, right, right. <clears throat> oh, I'm Scottish, I. You take the high road and I'll take the low road. So both Jessica Chastain and Chris Hemsworth are off and on having dueling, terrible Scottish accents, which is another thing because apparently they're based on Vikings. And this is the second property to try and have Vikings be Scottish. Why are Vikings supposedly Scottish? Like it was a quirk for how to train your dragon and all of that. Like they got Gerard Butler and Craig Ferguson and Emma Thompson to be the adults. And so all the kids have American accents and all the adults have Scottish accents. Like apparently you develop your Scottish accent after puberty or something. You know, once you hit 21, that's when you get your Scottish accent. But here, it's like they're copying How to Train Your Dragon. Oh, How to Train Your Dragon's popular. Maybe we should add dragons. Nope, Vikings with Scottish accents, go. <laughs> it's so bad. Uh, oh, and they, it's, it, they didn't need it. It could have just been bland, vaguely English accent, and you just had to keep it consistent. Keep it consistent with the rest of the movie. That's all you have to do. That's your only job. And these two kids couldn't do that. It's like, oh, hey, we forgot your Scott. Not doing another take, move on. So yeah, the prequel bit is about the introduction to the Huntsman by giving him a second love interest. Cause remember, he had a wife and kids in the last movie, and they're only brought up once by him making a vaguely burial mound of rocks. And then they're never mentioned again. You'd think throughout the courtship of Jessica Chastain and Chris Hemsworth, he would be like, oh, by the way, um, <clears throat> uh, how do kids? What? Oh, what, uh, you know, just, uh, uh do <coughs> we I'm sorry, I didn't quite get that, uh, how <coughs> <coughs> do Oh, must be allergy season. <laughs> never brought up, never mentioned again. The continuity of this movie is for shite. Uh, speaking of things barely from the last movie, uh, Nick Frost is the only dwarf to return. The only other dwarf I remember from the last Snow White, from the first movie, is Bob Hoskins, and he died. And a bunch of the other dwarves died in, like, a wannabe Lord of the Rings battle. And then there was... Nick, And Nick Frost was the one of the ones that lived. And they just bring him back like, oh, we couldn't get any of the other dwarfs to return. They were busy doing actual movies. So hey, Nick Frost isn't busy, so we'll do him and then he's got and he's got our brother, another sibling that was never introduced in the last movie. And then, hey, on the good side, they do have two dwarf and women. On the bad side, they were only introduced to hook up with the two dwarf men. That is it. that it's like the progress is one step forward and two steps back. You introduced female dwarf characters, which are so rare in a lot of fantasy film, and then they're only there to hook up with the dwarf men. And the one, was like a really sweet girl, and Nick Frost has his eye for her, and they hook up, and that's fine. Like, I could have gotten okay with that, because they had, like, this tough, tomboyish dwarf woman, and she was funny, she got a lot of great lines in. And at the end of the movie, they could have just easily had her be okay with... Nick Frost and the other dwarf woman hooking up. No, they gotta pair her up with Nick Frost's brother because God forbid a main character leave this movie single. (laughs) Oh, such terrible, terrible writing. Um, I'm getting really off track for the story. So yeah, that all there's the whole prequel business with setting up uh, not Elsa and hooking up Chris Hemsworth and Jessica Chastain for the next part of the movie, and then it takes place after, where they mention Snow White in passing. Oh yeah, Snow White's still the queen, by the way. Everybody, it's okay, Snow White's still the queen. And, you know, it's okay, she's the queen not appearing in this movie. And Chris Hemsworth has to go get the golden mirror, and he, he. that's where he meets up with Nick Frost and the other dwarf that wasn't in the last movie and then eventually runs into Jessica Chastain and then they run into the dwarf women and the really cool thing I like is the goblins in this movie they look more like trolls they have ram's horns and they dip their hands and feet in like this golden bog water to make it look like they have golden armor and I dig the design they're only in one scene in the movie and then they're completely forgotten it's like, oh hey, we have this cool design for goblins. Oh yeah, that's great. We're going to only use them in one scene and then completely forget about them by the end of the movie. But, but we put all this work into all the designs and the horns and the. There's a big fight and then nothing. And then like their blood is tar, and you could use that to set explosions. Or yep, they're only in one scene. Moving along, Jesus movie. So, yeah, eventually, uh, not Elsa gets gets the mirror and Charlize Theron comes back because contractual obligation, because she's the only other woman from the last movie who we can get. And she is nowhere near as, like, she's barely in this movie. She's all over the marketing. She's, like, second build after Chris Hemsworth. She is barely in this movie. She shows up in the beginning and then shows up afterwards because some mystical magical it's magic we don't have to explain anything and she's back and then like a couple of fights between her and not elsa and it's it's all a garbled muddled mess and it's really not good this is this is lazy filmmaking at its best this is complete cash grab sequel despite the fact that they had four years to work on this well, three, this was released now. So he had three years after the last movie to write out a script, plan everything out. And it feels like they just started working on it last year. That's how rushed it feels. And like, by the time the movie was done, I was like, oh, that's it? That's all of it? I mean, because the last movie felt like it was, you know, intense and it had drawn out, very Lord of the Rings inspired. And here it's just like, bop, zip, zap, zoom, and we're done. It's like, okay, look, we're contractually obligated to make this movie. Just, just go. Just go. We, we want the money. Go, go. The hunt, Snow White and the Huntsman 2, the search for more money. Isn't that always the case? So, yeah, this is marketed also as a prequel. And poor Liam Neeson was attached to, do, to fill in all the blank spots of the narrative with, narr- with his voice. And he gets to have, and he has to say some of the dumbest stuff. Like, you know the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, but but let's tell the story that came before, or something of that nature. And he is completely... Like, he could have been anybody. They could have gotten Billy Connolly. He would have been just as good narrating this garbage. Just adding Liam Neeson doesn't make it better, because it's like, oh, hey, the narrator's back. Why is the narrator back? Oh, because they didn't write that part into the actual movie. Okay, gotcha. So, yeah. Um... This is not worst of the year bad. This isn't like Norm of the North or even Gods of Egypt levels of bad. This is just, like, this is cult classic levels of bad. I don't know how to describe, I can't think of a good movie to relate it to, but it's one of those hokey, really badly written Effects driven movies that was completely unnecessary and just crammed into the movie with like a hammer and crowbar. Quick, get in there! Or rather, split in half and hammered onto the ends of the last movie. Okay, hey we last... End of the last movie. What now? Okay. Quick. Use Elmer's glue to fix it and add it. And get on the other side. Okay. We're good. How's the narrative looking? It's completely falling apart. Perfect. Send it out there. Oh, God, yeah. So, yeah. The Huntsman, because Snow White slept with the director and nearly ruined his marriage and was deemed a whore by the media, so we're not bringing her back. Woo! God forbid we bring her back. Ugh. <laughs> uh. So, yeah, the Huntsman Winter's War. Just go watch Frozen and Lord of the Rings instead. Do yourself a favor. Also, then watch The Avengers. That way you can get your Chris Hemsworth fix. And if you want your Charlize Theron fix, Mad Max Fury Road. So, yeah, instead of watching this piece of crap, go watch Frozen, the entire Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Avengers, and Mad Max Fury Road. It's a lot longer haul, but you get a lot more out of it. Go, 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 go! This is madness. I am not dying over this jazz tape. Don't call it jazz, man. That's a made-up word. It's social music. This weekend was relatively light. Not a whole lot came out this weekend. It was pretty much just The Huntsman. And uh, in my area, there was a wider release of a festival movie from last year Written, directed, produced, and starring Don Cheadle as trumpeter Miles Davis. I never really got into Davis. Um, I knew his sound was well-respected and everything I've heard I've liked, but I never really threw myself into his work the way that a lot of my uh, contemporaries studying music would because he was this well-regarded musician along the likes of John Coltrane, Charlie Parker, all these guys who made great music for instrumentalists and were well-regarded by music students. So I never really got into Davis, although now I think I'll try to dig a little deeper and find some Miles Davis music and listen to it more because it's really great music. The way they use it in this movie is fantastic. So I was reading into the making of this movie, and apparently when Don Cheadle started, uh, around the time he started auditioning for Ali, uh, the Muhammad Ali biopic that eventually went to Will Smith. People were telling him, "Oh, you gotta play Miles Davis. You know, you look just like Miles Davis." And it wasn't until Miles Davis was posthumously inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame that uh, Davis's nephew said, "We're in the works with Don Cheadle to make a Miles Davis biopic." And Don Cheadle's like, "Wait, we're working on a biopic." They caught him off guard, and so since then, Don Cheadle's been working with the Davis family and with a lot of the people seen in the movie like his first wife Frances and this movie was produced by Miles Davis' estate and it's it's kind of fictionalized I've come to find out because I was trying to look into the events of the movie. A lot of the flashback stuff that looked at the early Miles Davis when he started in the 50s his marriage to Francis, all the way up through the present narrative which is like the late 70s, 1979 1980 I want to say all the flashback stuff was pretty accurate to the actual Miles Davis. The present-day narrative for the movie, though, is fairly fictional. They've got a fictional Rolling Stone reporter played by Ewan McGregor who instigates Miles Davis's comeback, so to speak. McGregor's character kind of gets Davis to come out of his house. He forms this friendship with Davis. And the character is completely made up. But listening to Don Cheadle talk about the process of making the movie, he wanted to make... He didn't want to make Walk the Line or Ray, you know, something that everybody's seen. He wanted to make something that was indicative of Davis's work as an improvisational musician. So you've got this sort of 70s-era gangster movie with all kinds of drug deals and going over this MacGuffin, which is this sort of new wave-style music, which they don't play for you until the very end, what it sounds like. But they've got Miles Davis a fictional Rolling Stone reporter and a fictional new trumpeter like they play him off as the new Miles, the next Miles Davis and he's got a scumbag agent who's really pushing him on Miles Davis and he's called Junior so he's being played off as the like the next iteration of Miles Davis and the kid they got he's a great trumpeter and he he does all right for the role that he's given but it's, you know, it's a really interesting sort of narrative because knowing that a bunch of... Knowing that the present-day gangster stuff is fictional, uh, it's interesting to look at the movie then because you're essentially watching a historical fiction. You're watching uh, somebody's... Life story, but a lot of it is made up, and I that's something I have a lot of problems with in Hollywood. Is they will wholeheartedly make up stuff about somebody's life. And this is one where they openly admit to making up the the main narrative of the movie. That's, you know, a lot of guns and a lot of, you know, back and forth about stealing this MacGuffin of these uh Columbia record sessions that Davis has been working on. And that part is still good. It's still fantastic. Don Cheadle is an amazing, you know, filmmaker, it turns out. And I actually want to see what he's going to do next. Because if he does something else, like if he does another um, 70s era, you know, either black exploitation or maybe gangster style film, I'd love to see what he does with it. Because he is a solid, solid writer. He's a good filmmaker. He's got a great eye for... Film And he reminds me of a young Tarantino, the way he cuts back and forth and the way he'll, the way, you know, different tricks of the camera and different, like, editing sort of, and different editing sort of tricks that he would do. A lot of what he does works for the most part. So it's not an accurate biopic. So I kind of knock off points for that. Just for me personally, as somebody who loves adhering to what actually happened and depicting that on film, but at the same time, if the Davis family was on board and they didn't object to how Cheeto was portraying Davis in this fictionalized fashion, then I'm, you know, I I can't really say they're wrong. And, you know, at least it's interesting, you know? So at least it's not the usual biopic. and But, but at the same time, I kind of think it's more along the lines of, when they'll do fictional accounts of historical figures and writing and and, um, narrative fiction. I think it's more like that than an actual biopic. And I'd say if you get a chance, go see it, because it's a good film no matter what, and it makes great use of Davis's score. And it focuses a lot on his first wife, who Davis even admitted to being his first true love, despite marrying Cicely Tyson towards the end of his life. And... Disley Tyson also helped really, you know, was instrumental in his comeback. So she does kind of get left out. But at the same time, the movie was focusing on Davis's first love that he you know was the one that got away. So it's not perfect. It's a great first film. Like I would love to, you know, this is one of those first films by a director and a writer that really shows you there's a talent underneath that and I'd love to see Don Cheadle do more even if it's more independent stuff like this more festival film stuff and you know stuff that takes a year to get out to the public because this was 2015 when it premiered at New York and Toronto and various film festivals so this is described as a 2015 movie despite being released a year later but yeah if you get the chance Go see Miles Ahead, named after one of Miles Davis' albums. And after the break, we'll be back for some prequel talk. So take me away I don't mind But you better promise me I'll be back in time I gotta get back in time you don't affect your future So yeah, despite marketing turns out the Huntsman Winter's War pulled a Godfather 2 and only made half a prequel but in some cases is half a prequel worse than no prequel at all do we need prequels well the thing is I wasn't sure how to look at it so I kind of broke down the major list of all the prequels and this includes a lot of this includes full movie prequels, stuff like the Star Wars movie prequels and The Hobbit, as well as a bunch of midquel stuff, stuff that takes place in the middle of the movie, stuff like Bambi Two and a lot of other Disney stuff that takes place in the middle of the of the first movie. And the way it broke down, uh, the best prequels that I, the prequels that I really enjoyed out of the whole lot of them are the first you know are the Don Corleone halves of The Godfather 2 uh Temple of Doom which takes place first chronologically in terms of Indiana Jones it takes place before Raiders of the Lost Ark and X-Men first class and Days of Future Past and the and we'll see about the upcoming Apocalypse but that whole line has been it's still technically in continuity with the 90s X-Men movies So it'll be interesting to see where they go with that after Apocalypse, because by that point, they're reaching the point of the 90s X-Men movies. Uh, As far as bad prequels go, first two up are Star Wars and The Hobbit. And Star Wars is a, like, it's quintessentially bad filmmaking. It's been talked to death for how bad it is. Just for adding on to the story leading into Star Wars and for its writing and for what it, you know, what Lucas chose to show on screen. It's all kinds of bad choices that show sometimes an auteur needs somebody to rein him in. The Hobbit is much like Winter's War, one of those cases where you really need to take your time. Because it took the better part of, I think, like six years to make the Lord of the Rings trilogy. I think it took like three to make The Hobbit. And it was completely rushed and relied more on CG. And it shows that it was rushed and it wasn't as well thought out. Like, Billy Connolly's character is completely digital. They completely made him up on screen. Like, he's never shown in costume on screen and i feel like that's one of those things where you've completely rushed this whole thing to try and cash in and good that they did because if they hadn't christopher lee would have died while they were still making the movies but at the same time there's so much more you could have done with the hobbit and really so much less at the same time because you didn't need that much. You didn't need the Toriel character and the love triangle. Legolas didn't need to come back. I applaud Viggo Mortensen for not coming back despite the fact that it would have been a great paycheck and he would have been with his friends again, but he didn't need to come back. He was good. Aragorn wasn't in The Hobbit yet. He wasn't introduced to Lord of the Rings, so you don't need Aragorn in The Hobbit. I admire him being true to the character and realizing he didn't need to be part of a cash-in. So I admire him for that. Uh, other than that, uh, Oz the Great and Powerful, I don't know if that counts as a prequel or a reboot. They weren't really sure. I went off a Wikipedia list. They weren't sure how to define it either because it could be a number of things. Either way, Oz the Great and Powerful is one of those cases where if the first movie where they had like Robert Downey Jr. signed up and... it. It could've like that was one of those movies that suffered from bad casting with Mila Kunis and James Franco and bad writing overall because I did not like the way they intro- they made uh the Wicked Witch in this movie. If you aren't gonna go the Elphabell route where she's green the whole time, the way they did it here is not the right way to go. And it was a problem I had with that, as well as Maleficent, where it's all about hearts being scorned. You know, it's all about women being scorned, and that's why they turn evil. And I hate that as a film, and I hate that as a plot device, because it feels lazy. It's completely rote by this point, and you shouldn't be doing that now. We have better means of character development. After that, we've got Prometheus. Speaking of terrible writing choices, that mess of a movie, which at the same time wasn't terrible. The effects were good, um, I loved Michael Fassbender's performance in the movie as the android character and it was, like, but like, they make terrible choices in there. It's bad writing filled with plot holes and... The way they kill people off it makes is completely unrealistic. And when you start to think about them, you're like, wait, that wouldn't happen. Because, you know, you turn left when something's rolling at you in a straight line. Oh, you would play around with the alien creature. You would be professional and, like, put it in a box or a tube to take it back to the ship or something. I don't know. It's, people have broken it down better than me. But, yeah, Prometheus was another case of a bad prequel. And they're still trying to make it work. So good luck to Ridley Scott on that. He has not really... The best thing he's done in a long time is The Martian. So maybe he should stick to more stuff like that. Next you got is The Thing. The 2011 one that they did. Which wasn't as good as the John Carpenter Thing. And it relied wholly on you knowing the original Thing. Like if you know what happens in John Carpenter's The Thing. You already know what's going to happen in this version of The Thing. And it doesn't do it as well. So it's a complete re. It's like a sequel that does a complete repeat of the story from the first movie. So you're doing that, but it happens before the first movie. And I'm not even saying that the Norwegian camp wouldn't make for a good story. But I do think if you did it more as like a Norwegian, like if you got the guys who made Dead Snow to make the Thing prequel at the Norwegian camp, I would watch that. Otherwise, what they came up with was not as good. Next one I have is Tremors 4, which was a direct-to-video prequel following the success of Tremors 3 Aftershocks and the Tremors TV series. You had Tremors in 1898, complete with Michael Gross in costume and a couple of Asians as the predecessors to the people who would eventually live in that town. And it was essentially Tremors in the Old West. <laughs> it's about as good as what you're thinking. If you're, In fact, you're probably thinking of a better movie from that description than what was actually made. So you can skip that. In fact, you can skip, stop Tremors at two. You don't need to watch any of the next ones, especially that one with Jamie Kennedy. Things are bad when you've resorted to Jamie Kennedy. Next way I have up are the Disney mid-quals, Bambi 2, Fox and the Hound 2, and Tarzan 2, where they take place in the middle of the first movie, so they're technically a prequel. They're listed as prequels, at least on this uh, Wikipedia entry. So I'm at least going to talk about them because I have seen them. I have seen Bambi 2, I've seen Fox and the Hound 2, and I've seen Tarzan 2, and all three are not good. They're nowhere near as good as their original movies. Best one of the three, I think, is Bambi 2. And I do have a personal bias. I did actually make a video about Bambi 2 for a review. And I tore it all to pieces. But at the same time, I had to admit, I do kind of like it because that first movie holds a special place in my heart because it's one of those movies I grew up with. But this whole lot of Disney direct-to-video sequels, prequels, midquels, everything was all just cash grab, quick, put it out there so we can make the money. Next up, uh... <laughs> Oh... Before the awfulness of Dumb and Dumber TO2, you had Dumb and Dumber er when Harry met Lloyd. Oh boy, that was a mess. And it completely. It was. It could have been anything. Like, if you made that with two completely different characters than Harry and Lloyd from Dumb and Dumber, it would still would be a bad comedy. Now you've got a bad comedy tied to a better comedy. And oh man, oh, I haven't seen it in so long because it was terrible to sit through and it was so poorly thought out. And I feel bad for the likes of like Sherry O'Terry and all these other really good comedy actors and actresses who had to resort to being in this garbage heap. Ugh. Next up, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Oh boy, if the Star Wars prequel didn't exist, this would probably be the worst prequel. As it stands, Star Wars has the worst prequel movies, which is quickly followed by X-Men. Oh boy, Origins Wolverine. The one that silenced the Merc with the mouth and gave him Baraka arms and Cyclops Vision. (laughs) All terrible, terrible choices. Uh, so yeah... That movie exists. I don't think I have to say any more to that. The last three I have that I've seen that were listed were all horror stuff. The Paranormal Activity movies 2 and 3, which apparently took place before the first movie. I never really paid attention because all the Paranormal Activity movies were stupid to me. I never liked them from the beginning. And making it with 80s cameras didn't make sense any more sense than in modern day. And the whole lot of paranormal activity has been terrible to me. And I feel like paranormal activity will be better once they institute um, GoPro technology. By which I mean, if they go the Hardcore Henry route, I think that'll save that series. In fact, I think horror can do a lot of great things with GoPro now that Hardcore Henry has kind of taken that first step. So I'm really I really can't wait to see what they do with that. Um, aside from that, we've got Annabelle, the prequel to The Conjuring, which I haven't seen. I did see Annabelle, though, and it was one of my least favorite movies to come out that year. I think it was 2014. And it was awful, just complete garbage. Like, it co- starts off with a Manson family analogy and then goes on to an even worse movie. Like, if they had just done The Manson Family, that would have been a decent movie. They'd start off with The Manson Family and then make an even less interesting movie. So, yeah, Annabelle. It's garbage, and it's gonna have a sequel. Ah. You know what would be more fun? Is if they had managed to get the license to the actual Annabelle doll, which is a Raggedy Ann doll. That might have been interesting. If it was the same writers making that movie with the raggedy and all, it's still gonna be garbage. And the last one that I've seen is Insidious 3. And that one was all the Insidious movies I haven't liked. I never thought they were scary. I thought they had some interesting ideas. But they're not good movies. They're not movies I watch again and again. They're just stupid horror movies. Like, for me, horror works best when it can get under your skin, and it's not jump scare, it's not that, and I'm sorry for that, I probably should have given you a warning, but jump scares don't scare me, that's called startling, you know, South Park said it best, I'm so startled, because that's not scary, it's startling, there's a word for that. We have English, you know, the English language has words that you can use. They're not jump scares, they're jump startles. It's not as intense as scary, but then jump startles aren't scary. So let's call it what it is. But yeah, I think the wor- the horror movies that have worked for me have been kind of eerie and unsettling. like Stuff like the sinister movies. Sinister One was really good. It was one of my favorite movies to come out in 2012. And I thought it was really unsettling. And I think it kind of played along with a lot of the regular horror tropes. But I thought what it was doing was really interesting. And it was really unsettling. And the second movie was okay. It, it It went in a logical direction, which is good. But I still think the first one's a lot better. And then the first Exorcist movie, I haven't seen in a while. But I... You know, I like the filmmaking for that. Uh, the original Poltergeist, I think, for the most part still holds up. I need to rewatch that one again. But yeah, there's so much horror that I don't really watch because so much of it is jump-startles and bad writing and acting, like with Annabelle and like with the Insidious series. So we'll see if The Conjuring 2 will be any good later this year, but bleh, I don't like most of horror movies, and... If you're not going to be bloody disgusting like with Peter Jackson in the early days, at least be terrifying, you know? The Thing. Perfect mix of psychological horror and bloody gore. The Thing is a perfect horror movie for me. So I haven't really seen anything much to compare to that. But that's what you want to go for for me with horror. Uh, The other prequels I pulled up were stuff I haven't seen. I haven't seen... The Little Mermaid 3, where they had, I believe, Diane Lane or somebody play Ariel's mom. I haven't seen that one yet. Probably will never see it. Red Dragon and Hannibal Rising I haven't seen. I don't know if they're any good. i heard mixed things about Red Dragon, and I've heard nothing but bad things about Hannibal Rising. The best movie out of that whole franchise for me was Silence of the Lambs, because I never really got through Hannibal. So, eh. Haven't seen the series either. So much stuff that I haven't taken the time to see. Uh, Gods and Generals, which was a prequel to Gettysburg, neither of which I've seen. So yeah, there's all this stuff that I've, it's out there that I've never seen, so I can't really comment on it. Zulu Dawn, which was a prequel to the British Zulu movie about the British army versus the Zulu empire. I haven't seen either of them, so I can't say to their quality. I know there's a video reviewer, British kid by the name of Nick Hodges, who does a series of historical-based movie reviews called History Buffs that he does on YouTube. Just look up History Buffs on YouTube. He's, his first movie was Zulu, and he, I don't remember if he went into Zulu Dawn, but either way, I haven't seen either, so I can't really comment on them. And the last one was something, was like a prequel to a movie called The Little Foxes. No idea about that. Apparently had Betty Davis and it was this relationship drama sort of piece from the 40s. But so it was to more to illustrate that they were doing prequels in the 40s. So this isn't a new step from Hollywood. Prequels. Prequels have been around. They've probably been prequels in literature long before they started making movies. So they're always going to be around. And I don't know if prequels are a good idea because so many of them have been done poorly as cash grabs, like sequels. Prequels and sequels have been done so poorly that it tarnishes the way that audiences view them because studios don't take the time to make good prequels and sequels. And I think if you go along the ways of a Francis Ford Coppola with Godfather 2 or even a Spielberg way with Temple of Doom, uh, for some people Temple of Doom was their favorite Indiana Jones movie. It's probably one of my lesser favorites. I go more for Raiders of the Lost Ark and Last Crusade before Temple of Doom. But at the same time, I'm Temple of Doom is not a terrible movie either. So there's a good way to tell a pre-existing story. And I think if you go the route of, fan- of the previously mentioned Coppola and Spielberg and Lucas for the 80s, at least, Spielberg and Lucas or what Matthew Vaughn started with X-Men First Class and what Fox has been doing with the X-Men prequels. I think, depending on how Apocalypse turns out, the X-Men prequel trilogy will probably be the best prequel trilogy to ever come out because First Class was good, Days of Future Past is excellent, and Apocalypse should be hopefully good. We'll see. I'm not familiar with the storyline that it's using from the comics, so we'll see how it turns out. If it's still the same guys working on it, it should be at least as good as First Class, hopefully. If it's if it's at least as good as X2, it's Men United, we're in good hands. That's about all I have to say for prequels, really. I think telling a previously existing story to uh to add to a franchise can work. It helps if you have a good writer and good filmmakers on your hands to really iron it out or else you get all of the garbage that i mentioned that about does it for this week so if you're listening to this you're probably listening to this on soundcloud which is my new home for podcasting because podomatic put a big limit on the podcast that i can host through them so now i'm hosting through soundcloud just go to soundcloud.com slash popcorn dash junkie to follow me there or if you want to follow me through iTunes, go to the iTunes podcast store and look up Popcorn Junkie and you'll find my orange mug, chopping on Popcorn. And if you want to help this podcast grow, go in there and leave a five-star rating and review. It really helps me and it helps to kind of boost my ratings in, the, in iTunes. It really helps get me noticed and it can add me to that new and noteworthy section to help build my audience. And as of right now, I'm not seeing myself anywhere on... Um, the iTunes store. Come on. There we go. Good Lord. Just looking at my page is depressing. Anyway, go to iTunes, look up Popcorn Junkie. You'll find my orange mug, chomping on popcorn, staring at a movie, and leave a five-star rating and review to help the podcast grow. Another way you can help the podcast grow is by going to patreon.com popcornjunkie junkie and leaving a monthly donation. That way it really helps me financially and can help me build the podcast to be more than just this series the first thing i want to do through patreon is add a secondary podcast called make a better movie where i go in and kind of discuss what i would do as a writer director producer whatever to make a better version of a specific franchise i started off with superman in episode three future ideas would be like transformers I could do Snow White and the Huntsman and try and tell a better version of that story. Uh, do remakes of old movies like, Freddy, like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the 13th. Things I've got listed include Age of Ultron, Fantastic Four, Master of the Universe, Star Trek Into Darkness, Seventh Son, The Crocodile Hunter movie. All these kinds of movies that I would give my critique of the original and much like a teacher with their little red pen, make my notes to help it improve for next time. So yeah, if you want to go to patreon.com slash popcornjunkie, you can leave me a monthly donation. There are all kinds of reward tiers for you. And my first goal right now is to get a second podcast going. And if you can't do financial donations, just go to iTunes and SoundCloud and subscribe to me there. Leave a five-star rating and review on iTunes and I'll read it out on the show. Or if you just want to follow me for more, just go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie and follow me on Twitter at cornjunkiepod. There you'll find updates on new episodes, my first thoughts on new movies that I see as they come out, and also updates on the Patreon and whatnot to kind of boost my social media presence, as it were. So yeah, just go to facebook.com slash popcornjunkie or on Twitter.com at cornjunkiepod. follow me on social media and if you really want to let me know how the show is doing give me your opinions give me your thoughts your critiques your rantings and ravings on my terrible opinions just email me at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com if you leave me a message there i will be sure to read it on the show email me at popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com for any and all input on the show that about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey, and not all prequels have to suck. The theme for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by The M on SoundCloud for more of his work. Artwork for Popcorn Junkie is provided by Nathio. N-A-F-Y-O. Look up Nathio.deviantart.com for more of his work. In fact, I don't watch YouTube videos anymore because YouTube can suck a bag of dicks. The way they treat their user base that doesn't make them money is garbage, and I hate them. Da, 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 da.